church. Um, any of you with kids up through fifth grade, if parents, if you'd like them to go to Gospel Project, now is their time. And um, everybody else, we will be continuing the book of 1 Samuel this morning. So if you would turn with me to chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 18. If you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there should be one. And on those blue Bibles, we'll be on page 138. Page 138. Uh, If you're new with us, our habit every Sunday morning is to uh, open the Scriptures to the next passage of the book we're going through, and then we simply work our way uh, paragraph by paragraph through that book. We do this because uh, the Scriptures is the source for knowing what God says and what He would have us to believe and to do. We've been working our way the last several months through this book of 1 Samuel, and it recounts events that are some 3,000 years old, and yet the message for us is certainly timeless. Last Sunday, by way of reminder, uh, we saw Goliath's arrogant defiance against God was met by a rock launched from a slingshot of a young shepherd boy named David. And the victory that God gave David led him to a rapid increase in notoriety. This morning and also next Sunday morning, so the next three chapters, will account for us specifically the revelation of people's reaction to what we would simply call the rise of God's anointed. Now, anointed isn't a word we use much today. But in the Old Testament in particular, when someone was set apart for a particular office, particularly the role of king, then the person doing the anointing would go and would pour oil on their head. Now, that's kind of strange to us. Sounds greasy, and who would want that? But what that was symbolic of is the special favor of God designating or setting apart someone for a particular service. Remember that David at this point has already been designated as king, and yet Saul is still the one on the throne. And so what we'll be thinking about today is the different reactions to the rise of God's anointed. Typically in a, in a sermon, we would consider the chapter before us, so in this case, 1 Samuel chapter 18. We look at it in in its context, consider the original audience and what they would have heard. And then towards the end of a sermon, we would take a few minutes to uh, consider together how that particular passage relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet this morning, I think the best thing for us to do is to start where we would normally end. And by that, I mean that we would put on that gospel-centric Jesus lens for the entire message today. And if I could introduce it in that way in a couple sentences, here's what we might say. It was God's will to bring the kingdom of Israel under the leadership of King David. And it is God's will to bring all things underneath the good rule of King Jesus. Why I said Jesus, I'm not sure, but it just came out that way. 
It was God's will to bring all things under King Jesus. Now, in their rise to their respective thrones, both David and Jesus experienced dramatically different reactions from people. As we consider how the ancient Israelites reacted to the rise of King David, we are encouraged to see something of how people react to Jesus. And in so doing, we're invited to consider our own reactions to Jesus. So what I'm meaning to say is that as we look at David's rise to power, we are meant to consider Jesus' rise to power and thereby understand why there are different reactions to Jesus today. Please understand, brothers and sisters, there is no neutral reaction to the rise of God's anointed. People will always have strong reactions. We'll see that with David, and we'll see that with Jesus. In the end, people either loved David or hated David. There really was no in-between. And today, people either love Jesus or when they actually come to understand who he is, some hate Jesus. Where are you? As Vamshi, one of our newest members, comes to read for us from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 5, hope you'll look for and consider where you are. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever he wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Thank you, brother. I encourage you to get to know Vamshi as he's made a commitment to us and us to him. Uh, the first significant reaction to David that we'll encounter in this passage was by a man named Jonathan. Jonathan is King Saul's oldest son, and he was a military hero in his own right. Apparently, Jonathan had been there in the previous chapter, and he had witnessed David's fight with Goliath. And as he watched this young man do what no trained soldier would do, he was incredibly impacted by what he saw of God's power through the life of King, who would become King David. Now notice, if you would, carefully, the words used to describe Jonathan and David's relationship, and in particular, Jonathan's response and reaction to David. Verse 1 says his soul was knit to David. It also says that Jonathan loved him. But verse 3 go, goes further. It says that Jonathan made a covenant with David. And verse 4 that Jonathan gave up his priestly 
attire and his weapons. I want to spend a couple of minutes explaining these details for they're highly significant. The word covenant is an incredibly important word throughout the whole biblical story. Essentially, a covenant is a promise or a pledge. It's a a commitment, if you will, made between God and people or between people and people under the leadership and authority of God. A covenant is the most important kind of commitment that one can make. And there are many covenants throughout the Bible. The easiest example to think of as we're trying to understand the concept is the covenant of marriage. Marriage is a commitment between a man and a woman under God who love one another and make a promise to love one another uniquely for life. Now, it's not easy to keep a covenant. It's not easy to keep a marriage covenant. And yet, that is the best example, perhaps, of what we think of as covenants today. Another kind of covenant is what we would today call church membership. Church membership is made between a group of believers who commit to live out their Christian lives together, to help each other grow in Jesus, and to therefore model His character to the world. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, you'll see that no explicit details about the nature of this promise made between Jonathan and David are given to us. But it certainly included the commitment to, to love David and to be uniquely loyal to him. It certainly begs the question, imagine if our relationships as a church were marked by a Jonathan kind of love and commitment and deference to each other. What a powerful testimony that would be of the gospel's ability to transform our lives. Because you see, by nature, we are not deferring kinds of people. By nature, we're sinners and therefore we're selfish, bent inward. And yet, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're freed from that slavery and which we can look upward and outward and thereby love each other well. Jonathan's humble pledging of himself to David is all the more astonishing if you consider the context. Jonathan, you see, would have been the next in line. Now, I don't mean the next in line at Chick-fil-A, as important as that may be, but rather the next in line to the, the throne. See, as the king's oldest son, Jonathan would be the next natural person to take over leadership when his father died. And so this makes Jonathan present in this moment, the prince of Israel. He's on deck for the most important office, a place of tremendous privilege and power. And yet as Jonathan saw David's faith, he was moved in such a way that he committed himself to David. And in so doing, he took all the norms of the day and turned them on their head. That's what the details of verse 4 are about. You see, as Jonathan took his royal robe and his armor, his bow, his belt, and even his sword, 
What he was doing is he's taking all the trappings of power and all the rights of his position and willingly, freeingly shedding them in a shocking display of deference to David. And in so doing, he pledged his support to David in what could only rightly be described as tremendous personal self-sacrifice. Now, whether Jonathan knew of David having already been anointed is not clear. But at a minimum, he's saying, David, I love you as I love myself. And I lift you and exalt you above me. What an incredible model of self-sacrifice. Instead of seeing David as a threat or a rival, Jonathan saw him as a man of great faith and godliness. Church, again, imagine a local church full of brothers and sisters who show that kind of generosity toward one another. Jonathan and David had a shared faith and a shared set of convictions and therefore a shared set of priorities. And they had shared experiences of seeing God come through in their lives as they simply trusted Him. Church, do you see that that's exactly what we have in common too? We have a shared experience of seeing God rescue us out of our sin through Christ. Therefore, we have a shared faith in our Lord, a shared set of convictions about what matter most in life, a shared set of priorities that reorient us from how people normally live. Therefore, we're sharing what's most important. And therefore, we really are encouraged to give ourselves away in love and commitment to each other, just like Jonathan did for David. Frankly, brothers and sisters, there... There is no reason why Jonathan and David relationships can't be typical as we live out our covenant of church membership together. What would that look like? Well, here's a couple of examples just to try to put feet to this. Even in the summer, we're a church with many college students. I want to encourage you to look around the room. Look for a young person you don't know. And before you leave the room, go over and invite them over for a meal this week. Encourage them not only to come, but to come with their laundry. And then as those clothes are washing, would you give yourself with an attentive ear to the complications of growing up in the world today? Or maybe on the other end of the spectrum, you could, as you go home today, take out one of your membership directories And flip through it for a name and a phone number of a senior adult you haven't seen in a while. We have quite a few who are now of an age such that they can't come regularly to our morning worship gathering. Would you pick up a phone, dial their number, ask them if you can come by, bring some brownies, and then sit down and simply listen. Engage that old saint who has more wisdom than you, that you might learn from them. 
Or maybe next Sunday morning as you think about walking into this room, you could do so with a prayerful attitude of, God, help me go in this morning not looking to be served, but to serve. To look in particular for somebody who's got nobody sitting around them and to go and engage them in conversation. Brothers and sisters, this is the covenant of membership. Jonathan deferring to David. Brother deferring to brother. Sister deferring to sister. Jonathan and David's friendship would last the rest of their lives. So it's a theme we'll come up against again and again and again. Now the rise of God's anointed David was met here, we see, by the love and support of Jonathan. And in this first paragraph, it appears that the same would be true for Saul. And yet it only lasts a paragraph. Saul would initially appoint and promote David, but that would rapidly change. Look with me, if you would, at verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that refers to Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. This saying displeased him. He, he said, they have ascribed to David his ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands? What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So imagine the scene with me, if you would. It was a common one in the day. When a decisive victory had been won and the exhausted and no doubt wounded soldiers began their journey home as they traveled through town after town after town. Then the wives and the children would flood out into the streets and they would praise God and overflow with joy in song as they considered the victory that God had won. And in this particular occasion, very likely intending no offense at all, notice that the paragraph says they went out to sing to Saul. It doesn't even mention David. They sing, Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. This is typical Hebraic poetry in which one line parallels the next and there's an intensification. They likely were not comparing David and Saul at all. They were simply announcing and declaring thanks to God. Imagine this wonderful scene of celebration now taking a sour turn. And what was intended merely to be a joyous celebration, the songs met the ears of an insecure man, Saul. Verse 8 says he was very angry. In that moment, the darkness of Saul's heart was exposed. 
The rejoicing of the women occasioned the fury of an insecure king. There is perhaps nothing more dangerous than someone in power who is insecure. There is no neutral reaction to the rise of God's anointed. Verse 9 powerfully communicates in a rather ominous tone what the rest of the book of 1 Samuel will unfold for us. Saul eyed David from that day on. It's evident that Saul was filled with jealousy. Now like Jonathan, whether, whether Saul knew that God had already anointed and appointed David to be the next king is not entirely clear. However, irrespective of that particular issue, Saul felt threatened by David. And therefore, because he felt threatened, he was deeply envious of David's success. And hear this closely. It wasn't enough for Israel to win and for God's people to rejoice. For Saul, the only thing that would have been satisfactory to him is if the songs had been about him. And friends, isn't that how envy and jealousy work? The rest of the chapter, along with the next two, serve as a powerful case study for the progression of unconfessed jealousy. Let's take a few minutes and think about how that is demonstrated here. Friends, when the seeds of envy and jealousy are sown in our lives, and we don't pull them out, but we allow them to grow. And when we we water those seeds by letting our thoughts about others run wild, then that, those little seeds of envy will grow up into a jealousy that will literally choke out everything else in our lives. They will kill everything good. That's exactly what happened with Saul. Through the rest of chapter 18, Saul's anger and envy will, will slowly develop to a boiling point. And he'll move from a quiet internal jealousy to an outward deception and manipulation, all the way to attempted murder. Now, while, while private, internal, quiet envy to murder may feel like a drastic jump. It's not at all. It is precisely the movement that unchecked jealousy take. In the New Testament book of James, Jesus' brother, half-brother, wrote about this. It says in James chapter 4, it'll be here on the screens, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I'm going to push pause there for a moment. Have you said in the last seven days, you make me so angry? Or rather, 
So much damage is done in sinful anger. Friend, the reality is, although it might feel like it, when it comes to sinful anger, no one has ever made you angry. Anger isn't a primary emotion. It's always the fruit of something else. And James here tells us what is underneath it, what the root is. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Now watch this. You desire and do not have, so you murder. James says, envious, jealous desires move from quiet internal thoughts to I want the greatest harm to come to that individual. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. People don't make us angry. Their actions butt up against our own desires and outspills envy and jealousy. The problem is, is inside. It was already there. David didn't cause something to happen to Saul. But rather the circumstances exposed what was already in Saul. You see, these sinful internal desires, like I want to be most liked, most noticed, most praised, most admired, most beautiful, most successful, most whatever, that desire causes an internal personal war that spills out as anger and covetousness. And then notice how this works. Jealousy moves us from not only wanting the best for ourselves, but to be unsatisfied with anything but the downfall of others. That's the path Saul chose. And brothers and sisters, that's the path we all choose if we're not incredibly diligent to turn again and again and again from selfishness to selflessness in Christ. As example A, let's look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Just a brief aside, this is sometimes wrongly understood as a verse saying that Saul lost his salvation. This isn't speaking about heaven or hell. This is speaking of Saul had been anointed by God for the position of king and the Holy Spirit placed his power upon him. And yet as Saul continually disobeyed God, God removed that special presence and power for kingship from Saul and put it on David. Verse 13, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. 
And he, that's David, went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before him. Do you see the relationship here between the success of the one we envy or are jealous toward and the overtakingness, if I could? The way in which fear grows and grows and grows. And then that gives birth to desiring the downfall of the other. Verse 17, when Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter, Mirab, I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, lest my hand be against him, but the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be a son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David... She was given to Edriel, the Mahathalite, for a wife. Friends, Saul felt threatened by David because Saul's confidence and faith were not in God, but in himself. And therefore, there was a lasting and abiding fear present in him. And the more people reacted to David with love and appreciation, the more Saul's Hatred and fear were fertilized and watered. You may remember if you were here last week that Saul had announced to all of his army, whoever will go out and fight Goliath, I will give you lots of money, a tax-free family, and my own daughter in marriage. But here it's clear that he hadn't followed through on that. But instead he said to David, It wasn't enough that you offed Goliath. Now you've got to go off and fight even more valiantly. In other words, move yourself to the front line and prove it. Prove your fidelity to me, and then I'll give you my daughter. His hope was that the Philistines would kill him. But when David was successful even in that kind of environment... Then he went back on his word and gave his daughter's hand in marriage to somebody else. But friends, as you read through the rest of the chapter, I encourage you to do that. What you'll find is that sin doesn't win. That jealousy doesn't reach a point of contentment. That it just grows and grows and grows and grows. Impotent to deliver on what it promises. One way in which the rest of the chapter explains this is that even though one daughter was gone, Saul would learn that not only did the women singing in celebration love David, not only did Jonathan love David, not only did his servants love David, even one of his own daughters named Michelle loved David. So Saul told David rather grotesquely, I'll give you my younger daughter. And I know you don't have the money to pay a bride price. After all, he's just a poor shepherd. 
So if you'll kill a hundred Philistines, then I'll give her to you. David apparently felt something toward this woman. And so he and his men went out and killed not 100, but 200 soldiers. And then Saul was forced to give Michael to him, or Michelle, (laughs) Michelle to him. Now don't miss the irony of this. Saul's jealousy drove him to circumstances in which he was forced to welcome David right into his own family. Isn't that what happens with envy? You think that somehow by zealously desiring your good over another, that you will turn out better. But all you're doing is serving up a heaping pile you're going to have to eat yourself. Jealousy is a sin, brothers and sisters, that must be cut out. It can't be appeased. It can't be quieted. It can't be swept under the rug. Unless the grace of God removes the terminal tumor of envy, it will only spread and multiply and kill you. Look at verse 28. It says, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michelle, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. There is no neutral reaction to the rise of God's anointed. Jonathan and Michelle, the Israelite army, and many, many, many more loved David. For them, David was not a threat. His faith was infectious, and they gladly gave themselves to his love and care. But in Saul's case, there was not love. There was only hatred. He was blinded by his own envy. That's how the rise of King David was met, with both love and hatred. And all these years later, friend, that is exactly the same way things go when it comes to Jesus. Friend, if you're here this morning as one still considering the claims of Christ, unsure about the Bible and the message of Christianity, We want to thank you so much for spending the morning with us, for coming and sitting and listening. We're humbled by that. And we want to encourage you to not be fooled by the common misconceptions about Jesus so prevalent today. You see, it's often thought today that Jesus is just one more option in a set of many equals. But what the scriptures actually say about Jesus is that Jesus claims to be God, that he's Lord, that he's Savior, that he's King of the cosmos, that he's the source and sustainer of life, that he's the only one who can save. Amen, church? And as such, 
Jesus is a wonderful threat to your sense of autonomy and self-rule. You see, Jesus will sit on the throne of your heart and in the driver's seat of your life, or you can't have anything to do with him at all. There is no middle position. Jesus will either be king or nothing. See, he, he's not satisfied with Sundays. He's looking for a 24-7 fidelity. Christianity is not a life plus Jesus. Instead, it's Jesus is my life. The message of Christianity is far more consuming than you have ever thought. The good news of this Christian message is that the God who rightly deserves all our obedience and hasn't gotten it from any of us has not, in fact, written us off. Instead, this king gave up heaven itself, came to earth in the first century, became a first century Jewish man in order that he could live the life we were meant to live, die the death we were meant to die, face the judgment that is only rightly ours, and rise three days later in victory to ascend to his throne where he now sits ruling and reigning over all. Friends, you see, the message of Christianity is that Jesus will be your life. That Jesus will forgive. That Jesus will give you himself. If you will turn from sin and turn to him. So we would encourage you today to look to Jesus. He is offering himself in what is the greatest covenant promise ever extended. If you will come to him with your sin... And you will ask him for faith in him, trust in him. He will give you himself, and he will keep that covenant. Friend, your recognition today that his threat to your self-rule is in fact a gift can change forever if you would but turn from sin and turn to him. In just a few minutes, we'll end this gathering and likely sitting next to you or near you is someone who's already found Jesus to be this good. And I'm sure they would love to visit with you for a few minutes. So just ask somebody sitting near you if you don't know Christ, tell me more about Jesus. And they'd be delighted to do so. Church, what about us who have already trusted Christ? What's here for us? Well, understand that as we share the gospel, there will be a mixture of responses to the good news. Some will say, I want to hear more. Some will say, I love Jesus. Some will express hatred. Friends, it was that way with the rise of David. It's always been that way with the rise of Jesus. And so, may our lives reflect the beauty 
of life lived under God. And may our lack of jealousy towards each other, but the freedom that we've been given to look out for one another, to show deference to each other, to hope and wish and pray for the success of others over and above our own. May that, in fact, be the greatest defense of the faith for the reality of the God who cannot be seen, for the presence of Jesus changing lives. And in so doing, may more come to look on Jesus with love and surrender as they see a re- people who live and demonstrate the reality of Christ. Would you pray with me now? Father, I'm sure I can pray on behalf of many in the room. There have been days recently where we have been more full of envy than we have of anything else. seems that mediums like Facebook are almost designed to cause us to say my life is better than yours and to provoke and expose the envy and jealousy that are within Father, we confess this envy and pray that you would now cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, would you raise up among us in this covenant of membership at Church on Mill, brothers and sisters who really do hope and long for and work towards the good of one another. We pray that you would motivate us in the coming week to in actionable ways because our identity is in you and we have all the security and position in Christ we could ever need that we would look out for the good of one another and in so doing be declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.